Welcome to the Binge Eating to Food Freedom podcast with Katie Papo. Our mission is to share the simplest and most peaceful system for food freedom in the world with people who suffer from binge eating, food addiction, and compulsive overeating. We are here to show that with the right strategy and support, any committed, coachable, and resourceful individual can feel peaceful and free with food. Hello, and happy Thursday if you're listening live, and good morning. So I'm going to just jump right in today. But first, if you don't know me, I'll just introduce myself. My name is Katie Papo, um, and this is what we do. We help people end compulsive and obsessive behaviors around food. So what I'm going to be talking today is, is the first element of that, is the compulsion, right? Because one thing that I find a lot of people miss when they're looking to really change their relationship with food is they think that it's about the food, <laughs> that it's the food that's abusing them. It's the food that's the that's the problem. It's the food that needs to be changed. Where in reality, if that were true, then diets would work. <laughs> and you'd be able to stick to a diet forever, right? And all you'd need to know is, you know, oh, I'll just go to a nutritionist. They'll tell me what's healthy and what's not, and then I'll be fine. Um, so why doesn't that work? The reason why it doesn't work is because that's not actually the real problem. It's more of the symptom of the problem. Some people think the problem's weight, how much you weigh. That's also the symptom of the problem. What we found is that when it comes down to compulsive overeating and that food obsession, like that constant thinking about it, it really boils down to two major things. Number one is compulsion. And number two is obsession. And we're going to talk about compulsion today. So I'm going to just kind of zoom in on that right now. And what's important to know about compulsion is that it goes beyond logic. So even if you know exactly what to eat, you know the perfect meal plan, and you worked with 50 nutritionists in your lifetime, and they all gave you the perfect meal plan for that period in your life, none of that will matter if the compulsion to eat something else is there because that's the urge. And it goes so far beyond logic that I often hear people saying, I don't get it. I'm so smart and I know exactly what to do. So why can't I do it? So what we're going to go into now is how to break down the compulsion, which is a process. So it's not something like turning on or turning off a light. Instead, what we found is it works better. I mean, some people do get those aha moments. I shouldn't say nobody experiences it that way. But what I see most of the time is it's this gradual process that doesn't need to take very long, even if you've struggled for a long time before. But the better you understand like what the compulsion actually is and how to deal with compulsion, the better off you're going to be and the faster you're going to be free from all of these urges and all that kind of stuff. And um I know a thing or two about compulsion because yes, I was a binge eater for a long time, but also I've had throughout my lifetime, many other compulsions for a number of years since childhood, I would pull my hair. I was diagnosed with trichotillomania, which is that compulsive hair pulling. I saw someone post in our group the other day that she also suffered with compulsive skin picking. Um, and there's all other types of compulsions as well. Uh, smoking, drinking, they can all be considered compulsions. But with food, food is actually not the worst compulsion to have. And I know that it seems like sometimes it is the worst because, oh, well, if I 
if my addiction was alcohol, then I could just quit. But food, I have to eat every single day. So it's harder. Sometimes we get that in our heads. But what I've actually noticed, and I used to think that way, by the way, as well. But what I've noticed is that over time, um, I've, I've seen that food is actually one of the easier compulsions to overcome. But when you do it properly, because instead of treating it like an addiction, you can actually instead treat it like habits. And when you treat compulsions like habits, instead of like a mental illness that you have no control over, then you can actually start to break down these compulsions bit by bit until eventually you're free and they're not even plaguing you at all anymore, which is the best. <laughs> so um, as someone who's like gone through this process of getting over multiple compulsions, I wanted to share this talk with you guys. And what we'll do this week is we'll talk, this will be like the part one, where we'll talk about ending the compulsive overeating without the diets, without the restriction. And then what we'll do next week is we're going to focus on that obsession part. And compulsion and obsession, of course, they go together, like think of OCD, right? obsessive compulsive disorder, they go together, but we can also separate them. And I think sometimes it's helpful to just take one thing at a time. So that's how we're going to do this. So what we're going to do today. Oh, hey, Nancy, I'm happy to see you here. So what we're going to do today right now is we're going to start just by talking about the basics on how to get rid of um, the bulk of the compulsion, and then we're going to get a little more nuance into how to continue to break that down over time. Sound like a plan? So, um, by the way, I had kind of like a weird morning today. So if I'm a little more rambly than usual, my apologies. I'm a human, and today was just like one of those weird mornings. Um, okay, so let's talk first about how to get rid of the bulk of the compulsions. So the first thing that we need to understand this for this is the binge restrict cycle. Now, think about the, the binge restrict cycle. I'm going to name a starting place, even though we know it goes in a loop. But imagine the starting place of that binge restrict cycle is when we say, no, you shouldn't have this food. So restrict could be coming from a diet, like as in you can't have this food or you can't have more than this amount or you can't eat past this time of day. All of those would be examples of restrictions. However, there is another more invisible type of restriction, which is just the thoughts that we're constantly feeding ourselves. So it might be like, oh, you really shouldn't eat that. Or, oh, you know that if you have that, you're going to lose control. Those things are also restriction. So even though they might not necessarily be a prescribed diet, they're still the energy of scarcity of restriction of not having enough. So the cycle always starts with that restriction of you can't have this. That's where it always starts. So then what happens when we restrict something? Let's use an example. Let's say we decided to restrict together. Let's say you and me, we decided we're going to go on a 30 day diet starting tomorrow and we're going to eliminate all cheese, all chips, and all chocolate from our diet. Everything else is fair game. We can have anything else we want, but we can't have cheese, chocolate, or chips. But our diet doesn't start till tomorrow. So what do you think we're gonna eat today, right? We're gonna go straight for all of our favorite cheeses and chocolates and chips, because those are the three things, the only three things that we can't have for 30 days. So you can see just like in that simple little example, how that restriction is enough to fuel 
the binge or to fuel the desire for that. So even if I wasn't even in the mood for chocolate or cheese or chips right now, because I told myself I can't have it, now I'm just like, oh, well, I, I want it because I want to get it in because if I don't get it in now, then I won't be able to have it for 30 days. So it's not my genuine desire for cheese or chocolate or chips that's fueling me to eat them. What's fueling me to eat them is the fact that I can't have them. And if I don't get it all out of my system now, I won't get to have it for 30 days. So what happens then? After, after that initial restriction, then that urge comes up. And that, by the way, that piece, that's the compulsion. It's that urge. It's that, that, that desire. It's, oh, I really want that. Or I won't be peaceful until I get that. Now, the more those urges come, obviously, they're going to become harder and harder to fight. Because willpower will only take us so far. We have a certain amount and we use it starting from the moment we wake up. And by the end of the day, it can peter out, which is a lot of the reason why people tend to suffer with nighttime type eating. That's a topic for another day. But the idea is that because the urges are coming and the restriction is fueling the urges, then it becomes harder and harder to resist. And that's what leads to ultimately the binge, the big dreaded binge where we break that restriction or we break that rule and we go into whatever spiral of, of binge eating that happens next. And then of course, what happens after the binge? What's the next stage of the cycle is then we feel like crap. We feel like crap because of what we just ate and how much we just ate. But it's also, it's beyond that. It's emotional because we realize we just broke a promise to ourselves. We set a goal, we didn't meet it. And then we have that guilt or that shame or that judgment. So what do we do if we feel guilty, if we feel ashamed, if we feel sick from all we just ate, what do we do? Well, starting tomorrow, I really got to get on top of this. I really got to stick with these rules and I'm going to make a new set of rules and make them very clear. So that way I don't falter and I don't fall away from them. So notice how that judgment and that shame and guilt and all the negative emotions fuels us right back to the restriction. And now we're back where we started at the start of that cycle. And then we continue in that cycle of binge, restrict, binge, restrict. And what I see that a lot of people haven't made the connection yet, which is why I want to kind of really go deep into it now as we're talking about compulsion, is that a lot of people are using diets as a way to stop binge eating, not realizing that it's the restriction itself that fuels binges more than anything else. Does that make sense? So whatever restriction or whatever kind of scarcity you have around food, it will lead to the binge sooner or later, whether it's a month later or that night. So behind every restriction lurks that urge to binge. It's like waiting to be there because that's the natural reaction. And that's biology. It's not a bad, it's not an inherently bad thing. It's certainly inconvenient <laughs> if we're trying to stick to a diet of some kind. But the thing is, it's it's biologically a sound principle because the body has one job. It really has one job. Its only job is to survive. And the body is not the same as the mind. The body doesn't know if you're intentionally restricting. All it knows is deprivation is here. So it's going to send whatever signals it needs to, to get you to eat more. Because that, in the body's mind, that's what survival is, right? It needs to eat more because it's trying to combat 
all of the restriction that you're putting on it. So what I see a lot with people who have these long histories of yo-yo dieting, we've worked with so many of those of those people personally in our program. What we see is that as they're going through this process, what we're going to talk through today of, of letting go of the compulsions, they, they start seeing these patterns where as soon as they notice the restriction, they start feeling the urge to binge. But it's not a bad thing because then they see the connection over and over. Oh, I just told myself I can't have that. And suddenly I want it. But I don't really want it. It's just coming up because I told myself I couldn't have it. I also see it. Um, the other time I see it the most is when people weigh themselves and they're over when they're like preoccupied with weighing themselves, that tends to bring up that restriction or that scarcity mentality of, oh, soon I'm going to have to stop eating. Soon I'm going to have to restrict myself. And then that perpetuates the, the compulsion. So the first thing to know about compulsions to eat is that part of it is biological and it will be triggered as soon as we restrict or as soon as we experience some kind of scarcity around food. So diets and food rules and all that kind of stuff, those are going to uh, encourage binge eating more, not stop binge eating. So the first step in releasing compulsions is releasing the biggest trigger of the urge to binge which is the restriction. So the first step always is to allow yourself to eat what you want. But I know I'm, I'm already hearing people saying, no, but I can't eat what I want because if I do, I would be totally out of control and I would gain so much weight. I hear that. I totally hear that. I thought the exact same way, but it's not just about saying, oh, well, and I'm going to show you the difference. It's not about saying, oh, well, I can't restrict myself because then I'll binge. So I'm just going to eat whatever I want today. In that situation, if you're not operating yet, and I'll show you how to how to shift to this, but if you're not operating yet from like a calm place where you genuinely feel like you can have what you want, unless you have that, then yes, you will still feel that urge to binge because if I tell, let's say I've been restricting myself for a number of years, I'm going to put myself in the situation of, most of the people I speak with now. Let's say I've been on, a, on, on and off of diets and binging for 30 years. Now, if I'm listening to this and I'm like, oh, well, all I need to do is take away my rules. All right, so today I can eat whatever I want. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still gonna think today, oh, well, what is it that I haven't had in a while? What is, the, what is the foods that, ooh, that I've been telling myself I can't have? And I'm gonna still be gravitated towards those foods, not because I really want them, but because I haven't let myself have them in so long. So you can see how the restriction plays this role in creating the compulsion. Um, and also the fear, it, it also emphasizes the compulsion. So um, like the fear of cravings, for example. So these are so the 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 actual restriction is the number one culprit of what causes the binges. So the first thing before anything else is to understand that in order to really give yourself true food freedom, it needs to be from a place of zero restriction. Um, and there is a way to do that that's safe and not a, not as scary as you might think. So um, so that's what we're gonna so that's what we're gonna do. And, and Nancy, that's a fabulous question. Um, restrict means portion control. Absolutely. Just look at the word control, right? 
you're trying to control a portion, which is in essence restriction. So um, portion control and this concept of portion control is, is definitely one of the things that will contribute to to restriction. I'll tell you a quick little story to kind of illustrate this, how that restriction really can operate in real life. We had a client who her like thing, her like addiction, she called it, was chocolate. And she always would try to portion how much chocolate she could eat. So she'd give herself like a certain number of squares that she could eat in a day. And then she started, you know, she started working with us. So we had, we kind of shifted her to thinking in a different way. And then instead of just looking at it from the, from the place of portion, like trying to control the portion, she started shifting to focus on like the space in her stomach and like what is, what it was that she actually wanted. So instead of counting out how many squares of chocolate, what she decided to do was just let herself eat as much chocolate as she wanted, but to really be mindful while she did and to pay attention if she still wanted more, knowing that she could have it any, any time she wanted. So she didn't need to like get it all in now. There was no scarcity. So she started eating the chocolate. She started eating it. And as she's paying attention, she was like, actually, this isn't really doing it for me. She said she had like maybe one and a half squares of chocolate or something. And she was like, mm, I'm good. So it's not about how much chocolate she ate or didn't eat. But notice how when she was actually listening to the body and building that skill of, of body listening, it actually ended up that she wanted less and she ended up eating less than she would have if she just went to her usual portion control and had three squares. She would have had double if she went the portion control route. Now, that's not to say that every time you're going to eat less, but it's about saying every time your body's needs will be different. So instead of deciding what you're gonna have based on a portion, you're gonna decide what you have based on how you actually feel and you decide as you go as you're eating. Um, normal, normal eating, or as I like to call it, peaceful eating isn't neat or, um, and what I mean by neat is it's not like, oh, you eat exactly three squares of chocolate or you ex eat exactly half of a sandwich like you would in portion control restriction mentalities. Instead, you recognize that when you listen to how you feel, you'll notice, okay, if I have one more bite, eh, I'm not sure how I'll feel after that. And then you start kind of asking yourself as you go and, and tuning into the body to see what feels good. So what it allows you to do is really stay in your, I call it like the feel good zone. The idea is not to restrict yourself, the idea is to feel good. And sometimes, a couple bites of chocolate's gonna make you feel really good, but you know that if you go overboard, then you're now getting into that zone where it doesn't feel good anymore. So the idea here, instead of trying to place this external control, like a portion control, or the food needs to weigh this many ounces, or it needs to be the size of the fist, or any of these rules, you don't need them um, when you're when you have the skill of body listening, which is a skill that everyone has, since you were born, but it's it, it's also a skill that a lot of people have forgotten, especially if they've done a lot of diets. So that idea, yes, the feel good zone is a really good way to think of it because then you're, whatever choice you're making, you're making it to feel good, right? And you know that if it starts to not feel great anymore, 
you can just stop. And the beauty of not having the restriction mindset is then it's not like saying, oh, well, I should finish it now because then I won't get to eat chocolate again until my next cheat day. Instead, you get to say, hmm, well, I don't really want any more right now, but if I change my mind later, I can have it. And then it doesn't fuel that, that urge to binge because if there's no urgency or no emergency to eat it now and you don't want it now, you don't have to. Does that make sense? So the first step in really letting go of compulsion is to let go of the restrict part of the binge restrict cycle. Because once you really cut out one part of that cycle, then the whole cycle starts to break down, which is, <laughs> that's what we want. We want to break down the cycle piece by piece. So beyond that, what I wanted to talk about today, let's assume now that you know, you're allowing yourself to eat what you want, but at the same time you find that, oh, but I'm still not sure how to really interact with these cravings that I'm still experiencing because sometimes it can, it's a process, right? To get yourself even mentally to that place. Cause if you've been restricting, let's say for 30 years to break a habit like that, it's like such a shock to the system. So it's important to be able to do this gradually. So what we'll talk about now is I'm gonna take us through how many steps are there? There's four, four steps um, on how to start looking at cravings differently. So they're a lot less intimidating to you. They're not as scary because when you try to avoid something, it feels so much bigger and scarier than it is rather than when you actually like look at it. Right. So what so I wanted to give this example and I've given this example before, but today I'm actually going to go through it in a little more depth. Um, this example came from one of my most popular classes. It's the five shifts to end binge eating and food obsession. If you're on my email list, it's the first email I sent out to you is the link to that uh, that class. It's a great if you haven't joined my email list, I'll try to remember to put the link in the bottom, but you can always reach out to me to send you the class. Um, that's going to explain all this stuff um, with images and things like that. So it's kind of easier to consume. But I give this example in that class of, I don't know if you guys have seen this movie, The Sixth Sense. I think it came out like in the early 2000s. I've seen this movie like a zillion times. Me and my sister used to like watch this movie over and over to try to find all the hidden stuff. So I know the movie very well. And this movie is like the perfect example of how to start handling binge urges and triggers and trigger foods, especially if you're the kind of person who avoids going to certain places because you're afraid that your triggers will be there or you don't wanna go down this aisle of the supermarket because you're afraid you're gonna be triggered by seeing a certain food you shouldn't be eating. Um, you get the kind of thing I'm talking about. Anyone who's been trying to avoid or restrict their food will benefit from this example. So to give you the context, in The Sixth Sense, it's this little boy who sees dead people, which he's so young and it's just terrifying to him. So the first part of the movie is all about, you know, he's getting these glimpses of dead people everywhere. And he sees their ghosts and he sees their bodies and all that kind of stuff. And it freaks him out. So every time he sees it, he won't even let himself like fully look at it. He just immediately runs, hides, cries, shuts down. Um, but what ends up happening is then he's going through life with this 
really contracted energy, always scared, always anticipating. And I see that that's what happens a lot of times with people who have been on diets for so long and haven't trusted themselves to stick with things because they've fallen off of them. So they end up trying to remove anything that could be a potential trigger from their life. So they won't go down certain grocery store aisles. They'll avoid certain social events because they don't want to be in the position where they'll have to make food decisions. So what happens is their world starts to become smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, which, I mean, then it starts to affect your actual life. It affects how you relate to your friends or your spouse or your partners or whatever. Um, so, but at the same time, you don't want to put yourself in that position because it's too scary. So this, these four steps that I'm going to give you are how to let yourself be in the, in that place, but without the fear where you can still feel um, more safe. And this is something to practice, but I'll go through it. So let, let's go back to the sixth sense example. So the first thing that happened was he experienced all this fear, but then he had this turning point and the turning point completely illustrates the four steps that we're going through today. So what happened was he was scared, scared, scared. He ends up, I don't know, remember how, but he ends up at this house where a young girl had died. And um, the funeral is going on. All these people are downstairs and outside with the family. And he walks upstairs and he's by himself and he's in the girl who passed away. He's in her old bedroom. And as he's looking around, she reaches out from under the bed, grabs his leg, and he freaks out. And he's like, ah, and he runs away. And he's like, <gasps> he's total panic mode. And what's what I see with people who struggle with, with urges and trigger foods and things like that, it's this very similar reaction that if oh my God, if I smell it or I take one bite, like it all falls apart. I completely lose control. I'm a total wreck. Like it's like I shut down and I have no control over myself. That's exactly what that kind of experience he had. It was just, he was shut down, consumed by emotions, couldn't make, couldn't make any kind of sense in his head. So his initial reaction is to run away, which is what a lot of us do when we're, when we're faced with our triggers or our trigger foods is we we avoid it. We run. Um, we don't keep those foods in the house because we shouldn't. We get mad if someone brings those food into the house because you should have known better that I can't handle myself with those things. So what did he do, though, this time that was different? After he had his panic attack and he's, you know, <gasps> he starts to slow down his breath. And he brings himself into this calmer place. And then he decides, I'm not going to run this time. I'm going to go back and I'm going to actually look at what I'm so afraid of. So he's scared still. Don't get me wrong. He's still really scared. But he goes back and he sees that she's like underneath something. So he like pulls over the thing and she's sitting there um, looking pretty scary <laughs> But he he's there. And even though he's so scared that he's trembling, he says, he says, um, is there something you want to tell me? Do you want to tell me something? That is his turning point right there. So first, I want to just backtrack and go through these steps. So the first thing 
And this is what we start, what you can start to do with these compulsions, these urges, these triggers. The first step, you just notice, you just notice and acknowledge. And that's initially what he did. He saw the ghost. He wasn't at the place yet where he was ready to sit and have coffee with them, but he was acknowledging what was going on. He got to the place where he knew what was happening and he's acknowledging it. This step is important because it's the opposite of denial. He admitted that he had this problem that he needed to solve and that it wasn't going away on its own and that denying it or trying to make himself feel better about it wasn't going to be the answer. He first had to had to really come to terms with this is real and I need to deal with this. Now, the second piece, after he had that initial panic, right, he took him, he gave himself some space to calm down. And this is one of the things that we that we probably emphasize like more than anything else in, in our program where we are working directly with people. Because in order for any kind of shift around a triggering experience to happen, there needs to be some calm and you need to have some space. So even just your breath, for example, going from <gasps> or holding your breath, just even transitioning to a nice slow breath. That's a beautiful example of how to just start giving yourself space. Think about someone, if you've ever, I've guided a few people out of panic attacks. So if you've ever seen anyone come out of a panic attack, what usually happens is their breath starts to get longer and longer as they're coming out of it. So it's this idea of you calm your nervous system, you give yourself space, you let yourself reach a place where you can be present with your trigger or your trigger food or your urge, which could be in your own mind without freaking out. So basically it's saying like, let's, let's imagine I just have a thought. Let's say there's no food here, but I just have a thought that I'm getting upset about. I have an urge. So I would let the urge be there. I'm not trying to push it away. I'm like, okay, let me just, let me just let that be there. But before I deal with it or try to do anything, I'm just going to calm myself and give myself space so that way I'm actually in a place where I could learn, where I could be curious, where I could be more objective instead of just, you know, being so consumed by everything and treating it like a giant drama or an emergency. You give yourself space to actually, ah, I'm here. Does that make sense? Now, the second piece is, or sorry, I should say step three is to observe and listen. So what he did, he went up to the girl and he didn't say, why are you here? What are you doing? Leave me alone. He said, can I help you with something? Now, these compulsions, these cravings often can be messengers and really good messengers. <laughs> um, when you treat them like messengers, instead of like a monster, you treat them as like a helper or you treat them as a messenger so you can help yourself, then you're going to be in a much more advantageous place than if you're panicking and treating it like a huge emergency that's out of your control. So that's why you need that step to calm yourself. But once you're calm, that's when you start to listen. And I'll give you just an example of what that can look like since we since we talked about the sixth sense version. I want to give you like a real life example. Um, is if let's say, let's say I have that urge in my in my head of, oh my God, I need sugar right now. I need sugar right now. 
if I stop and just listen and I tune in with myself and I ask myself, okay, what is it that I really need right now? The answer may not still be sugar. If I were to really listen, you know, a lot of times, and this is, this is a, I want to just emphasize one thing. This is, uh, these realizations come through feeling, not thinking. <laughs> That's why it's so important to be calm and like in your body first, because we can't think our way out of urges. A lot of people try to trick themselves and fight with their brains back and forth. We don't do any of that kind of stuff. Um, instead, we focus on shifting from that thinking, that crazy brain into who feeling. And the feeling is where the magic starts to happen. So when that happens, you go, you start to get much clearer signals of what's actually needed. And you'll find sometimes the, the craving just is residue. It just came because that's what your brain habits is used to doing and you can just let it go and let it float away on a cloud like we teach with cloud watching. That's, that's another video um, that we did a few weeks ago. Um, but the thing is, is if I'm experiencing an urge I'm not taking it at face value. I'm not saying, oh, well, that's because I need sugar and that's what I need. No, no, no. I'm actually looking at it from a more curious perspective now, more like detached, like kind of like a scientist, like, hmm, what does this mean? And then you start to get into the place of asking yourself, what is it that I really need? And I'll just give like a common example. A lot of the people who tend to crave sugar are actually craving rest because sugar is like that immediate burst of energy. So a lot of times people crave it when they're exhausted um, because they're craving energy, not, <laughs> not sugar. But really the best way for them to get that energy might be rest. The only way you'll get to figure that out is by listening to the body instead of trying to like battle the mind. The mind is, is not super duper helpful when it comes to dealing with compulsions. When you can create more control around the body and actually listening for messages, which is a, which is a skill that um, can be taught. Like anyone can do this. You don't need like some kind of like magical intuition. Like anyone can learn this. We see this all the time. Um, that th at that place, then you're gonna be able to listen a lot, a lot easier to see what it is that you really need in that moment. And then you give yourself any amount of, of what it is that you actually need. Now, the after so in the movie right after the the boy speaks to this girl and he says he says is can i help you with something it cuts to the next scene where we find out that this girl really just wanted to tell him to give a message to her family who was downstairs for the funeral saying that she was poisoned and that she's trying to warn warn everybody so that they don't poison her little sister so that was the message she wanted to get. So the little boy realizes he makes this connection now. Oh my God, she wasn't chasing me because she's a monster. She's not chasing me because she's bad. She needed my help. And that's what happens with these cravings and these compulsions. They're often a call for help. So when we see them more as a call for help or a call like for a need, like a need that you need filled, when we can see them that way, they're not monsters anymore. They're like, oh, duh, she just wanted me to give her family a message. She wasn't trying to attack me. So that was his turning point. And then after that, throughout the rest of the movie, it didn't stop him from seeing other dead people. It didn't stop. And I'm, I'm bringing that up because... 
having this experience with a craving won't stop other cravings from coming. We can eliminate tons of the cravings just by getting rid of the restriction, but cravings still come because they're natural. Even peaceful, normal eaters have cravings. So it's not that we're expecting, oh, he won't see the dead people anymore or the cravings will stop after this. But at that point, it doesn't matter if he keeps seeing the dead people. It doesn't matter if I experience cravings now and again, because we're not afraid of them anymore. And if we're not afraid of them and we see them as helpful messengers instead of monsters or something that we need to fight, then we're now you've shifted from working against yourself to working with yourself. And then we continue to bring yourself into that feel good zone, right? Because if food isn't in that moment, the real thing that you need, it won't bring you into the feel good zone. Or even if you get like a little feel good, it's gonna drop you right back out of it into the feel bad zone. <laughs> um, so instead you wanna be asking yourself these questions so you can continue to shift yourself into the feel good zone, whether that means giving yourself food or giving yourself something else that you might need. And then what happened after is this little boy, he's like celebrating himself. He's so grateful that he had this realization. Not only that, but he's grateful that um, and he uses his skills for good. Like when dead people continue to approach him from then on, he's like, oh, basically like, how can I help you? And he's so grateful that first of all, he has a gift that can help others. And he's also celebrating himself that he doesn't have this fear hanging over his head anymore, that he can go wherever he wants without the fear of being triggered. And that's ultimately what happens with food freedom is it's not like the clouds part and angels come down and say, oh, you've achieved the highest, the highest enlightenment. No, what happens is, is you get to go through your life, but just with less fear of being triggered by everything. And the less fear we have, the less the urges then come. So what's so important is every time you do any step of this practice, so whether it's the noticing and acknowledging it piece, whether it's the calming down and giving yourself space, whether it's the observing or the listening, whatever it is, however, whatever amount of practice you do with this, you practice gratitude and celebrating yourself because behavioral studies have shown over and over and over that people change the best and people change fastest and people change with the least resistance when change feels good. That's why we want you to stay in your feel-good zone. Because when change feels good, it encourages us to do it more. So when we practice actively, when we practice being grateful, um, which reinforces the energy of abundance, which is the opposite energy of restriction and scarcity. So it is super helpful there. And when we practice celebrating ourselves, then we're like, all right. Now suddenly we're in this progress-oriented mindset instead of looking for all the areas we failed. So what it does is it allows this to be a process. It allows you to make progress without having to get it perfect every time. Instead, you just practice. Um, and even the even like if you were to practice something today, even if let's say a, an, an urge came, even if you were to just practice breathing and calming yourself, even if you don't do it super well <laughs> and you're still stressed at the end, what, what happens is you're, you've still trained your brain in that moment 
to, instead of going straight to emergency mode and straight to freak out mode, you've trained yourself to put a little buffer there. And you've broken that pattern of trigger panic. Instead, you've put trigger breathe. <laughs> And you and you and that's what I call a pattern interrupt, where you put something small just to interrupt whatever old brain pattern you have. And what happens when you do these pattern interrupts enough times and you start to improve with them over time is then your brain starts to shift and your brain patterns start to shift. So then it, so then eventually what happens is you're no longer going trigger panic you're going trigger relax, which means that you're not gonna be triggered for very long. Does that make sense? So this is how ultimately we want to get rid of the compulsions because there's no fighting yourself. That's one of the biggest benefits I think because I personally don't have a ton of fun fighting myself, so I'd like to find a better way. Um, but this is the idea: is when we start to sh make these make these small shifts, they they compound, they add up. The brain patterns start to change, and now suddenly, what used to be a compulsion that triggered a panic, now you can have that same feeling, but you've retrained yourself into relaxation. So you experience the trigger, ah, and then relax. Now suddenly, because you've trained in that 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 um, relaxation response, now you're not your brain doesn't seem to recognize these things as triggers anymore, because it's immediately leading you to relaxation. And that's how these things on a brain level, on a pattern level, start to shift. So the main thing here is that your practice will what will be what makes the progress. Does that make sense? Practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect is it's an illusion. What we want to, and, and not only that, but when we focus too much on being perfect, that contributes to the all or nothing mentality, which is like a huge mentality that's wrapped around binge eating is, oh, I'll give you an example. Um, oh, well, I've already ruined it today, so I'll start tomorrow, right? Perfect example of all or nothing mentality. Instead, we want to be focused on progress mentality. Progress mentality comes when we allow ourselves to do any amount of practice and just build it, build it, build it gradually, steadily. Before you know it, the change will be made, but you're not trying to make the change all at once. You're just focusing on, all right, let me just practice any amount, any amount. Practice continues to build. You're celebrating yourself as you go. And before you know it, you're not dealing with the same problems that you used to have. So let me just check the comments because I want to give you guys um, an understanding of how to sustain this like for a lifetime because <laughs> that's usually people are like, yeah, but how do I how do I um, maintain it over a lifetime? It's a it's a it's a big it's a big um, part of it. So let me. OK, here we go. Thanks for the refresher level. Your amazing videos and grateful for these reminders. You're so, so welcome because um, the truth is, guys. Um, yes, Kathy, exactly. Practice makes progress not perfect. Exactly. The, the beautiful thing about this is anyone can do this. It really doesn't matter how much your brain has been programmed in another way, because you can just meet yourself exactly where you are and just work your way up. And it really doesn't need to take very long. Um, and once the fear of this is gone, it's like, oh, my God, your world just opens up because then you're not going around like with that contracted fear. So um, 
so what I want to talk about now is like, how does this, how, how, how would one sustain this for a lifetime? And I get this actually from our clients. Sometimes when they get to the end of the program, they're like so proud of their, themselves and the progress they made, but there's this lurking uh, thought in the back of their head, like, oh, well, how do I, how do I maintain this? Now, this whole idea of sustaining something or maintaining something, I'm going to invite you to just throw it in the garbage <laughs> for now, because what what's most important is just to focus on progress. And one of the things that um, Shahar, our mindset coach, my husband, he works with our clients as well. What he always shares is that we don't really we're not striving for maintenance or sustaining something. We want to continuously evolve and progress and maintenance and sustaining. It's boring. That's staying still. We want to continue to progress. And once food's a non-issue, it's not like, OK, then life is perfect. Then you just get to focus your energy on all these other things that are way more important to you than food. So the idea of sustaining this over a lifetime, you don't need to focus on how will I do this for the rest of my life or any of the, the food freedom uh, techniques that we teach. You don't have to try to sustain them for any number of years. The practice is coming back to them in any given moment. So whether you're practicing today or you're practicing 10 years from now, Either way, your experience at that time will be just you in the present moment. So everything that we teach here are techniques that are applied in the present moment only. You don't need to know how to control your, ten, your, your future self from 10 years from now. All you need to know is how do I start to become more of like the master of my present moment. You see the difference? Then you don't have to plan anything and you don't have to worry about what happens in the future because if you continue to bring, to, if you continue to build your skills that help you master your present moment, then you, you can come back to that anytime at any period in your life. That's how it's done. So it's not about sustaining, it's about resilience. It's about, oh, I fell off the bike, I get back up. Oh, I fell off the bike, I get back up. That's really all it is. It's what do I do right now? What I do, what do I do in the present moment? So with any techniques, whether it's this or 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 any of the other ones that we've that we've taught you, you don't need to worry about will I be able to stay, sustain this for life. All you need to do is build the skill right now. And anytime you have an opportunity to practice, to use it. And that's one of the reasons why initially in the beginning of this talk, I said that food addiction is one of the best. I know a lot of people will argue that it's the worst. And I used to be the same because um, you have to eat. You can't just cut it out from your life. I would also argue, I would argue now that it's actually one of the best addictions to have because you get all of this, you, you have to eat like two or three times a day. So built into your life are opportunities for practice. Every time you eat, it's an opportunity for practice. Anytime a craving pops up, it's an opportunity for practice. It's not that you're every time it's a, it's a, you have to fight a monster. It's an opportunity to practice listening to yourself and building up that trust and communication over time. And one of the things that I always wanna emphasize 
in terms of reaching out for help, because I believe, and I'm the kind of person who, if I don't know how to do something, I hire a professional to help me do it. Like if it's something that's really, really important to me, and I know that it's going to take me a ton of time or energy to figure it out myself, and that I might not even be able to do it then, I'm like, I would rather just pay a professional to help me do this. So that way I can do it better. Now, when you give yourself what you need, I'm not saying what you need is like professional help. I don't, I don't know who's watching. I don't know who you are. So I wouldn't recommend something if I don't know you. But the idea is when you are asking yourself, what do I need to give yourself what you need and whatever help you go for, it should, I don't want to say should, what we've seen works best <laughs> is when you get the type of help that teaches you to be independent rather than dependent on another person. Because the more you build dependency on another person, the more disempowered you will feel when you're alone. And I think we all know that a lot of binge eating can happen when we're alone. So the best thing that we can do is work with someone who helps you build independence. Like in our program, for example, we don't have 57 upsells after you finish the program. Oh, good. You finished this. Now you can buy this. Now you can buy this. We want people to not have to work with us anymore. Or if they want to work with us, it's because they already got what they wanted and they just want more. And I'm saying that because the other, uh, I guess it was just yesterday, someone told me that she had been in like, I forget if it was like between five to 10 years working with the same therapist. And the reason she kept working with them was because she didn't get the results that she wanted yet. And she had poured in all this time and energy and money, hadn't gotten the results, but it was like, oh, well, it's too late to turn around now. I've already invested so much into this, better keep going. So she kept working with this person over and over and over, not really getting what she needs and also building dependence on this person and not building any independence with herself. So the idea is if you're looking for help in how to train your own brain and work with yourself and to and to get rid of the the like that that self fighting that self battle it's so helpful when you focus on finding the help that's going to let you be independent instead of reinforcing more dependence i remember being at this conference once and there was somebody else who was in like a similar field to me and she stood up and announced and she said like, we save people from their eating disorders. And I was like, <laughs> no one can save you except you. You are the one who rescues yourself, right? Like if I help someone out of their eating disorder, I don't think it's because of me. I don't think it's because I'm a savior or that I can save people. What I can do, I can give people the strategy, I can support people, I can give feedback if they ask questions and they're like, hey, am I doing this right? But that's not me saving them. They're the ones still showing up every day and doing the work. And part of the, the, the letting go of the compulsions, really what it is in, in a larger sense is it's accepting that you are powerful and that you are empowered to do this. It's taking ownership. It's saying these compulsions or these urges or these feelings that I'm having, they're not more powerful than me. And whatever power they have 
is power that I'm assigning to them. So for example, if let's say I have a, I have a really um, traumatic history with um, cake. Let's say I have a traumatic history with cake, right? Let's say when I was little, I was told I could never have cake and then I like binged on a whole cake and then cake became like a fixation for me. Someone else might grow up and cake brings up all these positive memories. It brings up memories of birthdays. It brings up memories of celebration. So for me, cake is a trauma. For them, cake is, uh, cake is a joy. So notice it's not about the cake. The cake is the most neutral object in the world. It's a combination of flour and sugar and blah, blah, blah. There's no power in the cake. Whatever power that I feel that the cake has is power I've assigned to it. I've given it that power of you have control over me. But that wasn't the cake's decision. That was my decision. It was my decision to say you have power over me. So a lot, a lot, a big piece of this releasing compulsion. Yes, I give you the practical steps, but a lot of it is also the mentality of realizing you have more ownership than you think. And just because, and I see this all the time and it makes, it's one of the things that makes me really mad. And I still get mad about this, even though I don't want to be mad, I am. <laughs> but I see a lot of doctors and nutritionists and therapists, not malicious, well-meaning people, but who tell people that there's no cure for binge eating and that you just have to manage it and deal with it and kind of fight it for the rest of your life because that's the way it is. And it's an illness. It's not. It's a series of habits that can totally be shifted. And part of the mentality of being able to shift that is, is acknowledging you have the power. You have the power. And I don't mean to put down like entire professions. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I know that in mainstream treatment, there's still a lot of confusion that this is like an unfixable problem. And we see every day it's just not true. So when people sometimes get in their own heads that they can't fix something. It's because someone else told them that they can't fix something and they just believed it. But really, you can, you totally can. And we see it all the time. Um, someone asked a question, I want to experience pleasure. Yay, is food the solution or is there another pleasure that would satisfy that desire? Is that how that works? Oh, such a good question, Kathy. Thank you for asking it. Um, so pleasure, is going to depend on what it what it is that you need in that moment. So for example, like let's use that cake example. If I'm really hungry and I'm in the mood for something sweet like cake, it's gonna be a great pleasure for as long as as long as I pay attention to, to the point where it's pleasurable and I don't eat past the point where it's not pleasurable anymore, that'll be a great pleasure. However, if I want, if I'm, if cake isn't the thing, like let's say I'm not hungry, and really what I just need is like a break and that would give me great pleasure. In that case, then cake's not gonna be the answer. So it's not about compartmentalizing and deciding like this will give me pleasure, this will not. Instead, it's more about learning how to tune into yourself, which is one of the things that we teach um, to be able to listen to the body and the body's signals and to, to kind of practice self-care in this way where you're not putting rules and boundaries around what you can and can't do or what's good or what's bad or what you should or you shouldn't. But instead it's about being able to, again, come back to the present moment and see what it is you really need in that moment. 
And that way you won't have to like have a rule that's going to last you the rest of your life because you'll have the skill instead to come to the present moment, find out what it is that would bring you pleasure at that moment, just ask, and then you practice giving yourself that in any amount. Does that make sense? I hope that answers your question, Kathy. Um, so I went 25 minutes over <laughs> what I planned, <laughs> but um, this is the idea, guys. And this is the, when we're talking about compulsion, remember, just to kind of recap what we've talked about already, the first step, no more restriction because the restriction will fuel binges more than anything. Behind every binge, there was restriction. So the first step to getting rid of the compulsion is to release the dieting or whatever other kind of food rules you've been forcing yourself to stick to and letting those things go. And instead starting to focus on what it is that you really need and what the body's calling for. Then the, the other piece of the compulsion is to acknowledge it. You see that it's there but to give yourself a little bit of space from it. Remember, giving yourself the space before the boy interacted with the dead girl in the sixth sense, he stepped away. He gave himself some space to calm down. So that way when he did approach her, he'd be able to actually hear what she has to say. Because if he was in panic mode, even if she said what she needed, he wouldn't be able to hear it. Does that make sense? And then the third step, of course, is to listen to be the listener, not to try to control everything, but instead to be the listener. And then the fourth step is you celebrate yourself. Whatever amount of what you just did that was good and progress oriented, you celebrate yourself for that, you practice gratitude, and then you can set your intention for how you're gonna practice it again next time. So these four steps, when you do it over and over, remember practice is what makes the progress. And if you ever feel stuck, and, you, and you're having a hard time practicing these kinds of things on your own, that's what all of the stuff that we put out here is for. So if you haven't joined our email list, we, we cover a lot of topics like this in fairly non-conventional ways, <laughs> but in ways that work really, really well. And also if you want more and you want someone like literally at your side, step-by-step -step, helping you build these skills, then, you can reach out about our private program as well, because that is something that we've created for people who have been in the cycle for so long that they can't really get to the place where they can do this themselves because the mind is just so, it's just been trained, it's just been so hardwired that they need like steps and structure and support in every step of the way to know that they're doing this right and to know that they're making the progress that they wanna be making. So if that's something that resonates with you, you're welcome to reach out. You can just send a private message to me. Um, and I, I check usually once a day on the weekdays. So either way, you can join our email list and you can continue to get all that free support. Or if you're interested in our more intensive uh, 10 week program, which is um, more one-on-one, -on -one, more private, we have some group elements, but it's mostly one-on-one -on -one and focused on your home practice. And we have that option um, as well for people who are good fits for it. So if you wanna learn if you're a good fit for it, you're most welcome to reach out to me and we can have a chat about that and see if it's the, the best next step for you. Um, all right, so I have one minute till I reach the hour, so I'm going to sign off now while I'm ahead, and I'll talk to you guys next week when we talk about part two, which is going to focus more on not the compulsion element, but the obsession element, and the obsession element is 
a lot of times when we're restricting and we're and we feel so much compulsion, then we start to build this obsession. So we're going to go through these steps, but with more examples that are more connected to obsession rather than compulsion. Um, and of course, like I said, they overlap, but sometimes it's helpful to just separate these things. All right, guys. Well, have a beautiful rest of your Thursday. These talks are going to be every Thursday. You can find them. Um, we send out the replays to our email list, but we also post these to our, our relatively new podcast called Binge Eating to Food Freedom. So you can go on any major podcast app, type that in or my name, and hopefully that'll come up and just reach out if you have any trouble finding it. All right, guys. Talk to you very soon. Have a beautiful rest of your week.